When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Gilbert Grovner, who was the father of photojournalism, as well as president and chairman of the board of the National Geographic Society, had this to say about maps. Quote, a map is the greatest of all epic poems. Its lines and colors show the realization of great dreams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We hope you'll subscribe to our series on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm happy to welcome Riaz Dean to the show today to talk about his new book, Mapping the Great Game, Explorers, Spies, and Maps in 19th Century Asia. Riaz Dean is an engineer by profession and an independent scholar by choice. Riaz Dean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rene, and um, um, good morning to you, all your listeners. I, I love the idea of an independent scholar, a person who studies and learns, motivated merely by the love of learning. Tell us about that. What influenced you to follow that path? I, I guess it stems from my love of books and maps, um, and um, particularly um, I have two two passions in that. The first is um, to read and um, uh, learn about the exploration, particularly the exploration of um, of Asia, and um, and the other pieces around maps. Um, I think I'm perhaps like some of the other readers. Um, to hold a beautiful map is um, is a wondrous thing. And um, so, um, you know, I've always um, had that interest and to now convert it to actually write a book and with a few other books in mind is, um, yeah, it's very satisfying. Was there someone or something in your life that strongly influenced your intellectual development? Um, That's interesting because I am... you know, I was born and um, and really raised in Fiji, uh, um, which um, um, surprisingly, um, in our household, we had a lot of books and we all read a lot, including my father and and my my um, siblings as well. Um, so I guess I've always had a thirst for learning, um, and uh, I think coming from a small place, we sort of really had a, a wide scope because we tended to look. Outside 
the outside world for, for our interests. Well, this book focuses on the arc of countries around northern India, that is Iran, Afghanistan, Turkestan, and Tibet. What is the great game of your title, and how did it play out there in the 19th century? Yes, so the great game, I guess, was a euphemistic term that was coined by the British. Um, the Russians, by the way, had their own term, which was called a tournament of shadows. And, and what, it, what it underpinned was this um, the strategic rivalry during the 1800s for Central Asia. So the British um, had India, um, and it was a jewel in the crown, and, and um, really, ec- from an economic point of view, it, um, it really um, drove um, their wealth as well. Um, while, while at the same time, the, the Russian Empire was growing, and, um, and they expanded outwards into, into Central Asia, what was then Western Turkestan. And, um, and, and they steadily um, colonized the countries that, that today we know as the Stans, you know, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan. Um, and as they did that, um, the great game was in a way created because um, their ultimate goal was perhaps, perhaps to... Um, to, to take India as well, and, and that is something that the British would, would never allow. And so the battle lines were formed along that arc that you, you mentioned, and, and it was these buffer countries in that arc, particularly Afghanistan and, and, and Tibet, um, and, 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 and north of the, of the Oxus River, um, which today is the Amu Darya, uh, that is where the great game was played out. Um, and um, both sides uh, pursued it vigorously, almost came to war on a couple occasions, uh, but in the end um, were able to avert it. I think sound, sounder heads prevailed. It's somewhat shocking to our 21st century mind is the role played by what you call the tyranny of distance, the incredible amount of time it took to communicate between, for example, London and Calcutta. Tell us about how that impacted the course of events. Yes, actually, that's, that's a very important point in, in understanding why events unfolded as they did. Um, you know, in the early 1800s, and um, when, when India was um, first colonized and, um, and being developed, uh, because, because of the, the way the monsoons um, affected shipping. For example, a, a, a note from the British Parliament um, through to through to the administration in India um, could take could take many many months. And by the time they replied, and um, that reply reached back home, could, could have been anything up to two years. Um, because really, the only the only way then was 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 through shipping and um, and notes carried through shipping. People could travel overland, but all through Central Asia, um, much of that was pretty dangerous territory and, 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 not, and, and not easily um, na- um, navigated. So, so, so those, early, those early days, um, the, the British that were in India really made their own decisions. I mean, they, they needed to anyway because they were there on the spot and, and, um, and events were changing quite quickly. 
but also they pursued their own interests as well. And you know, it's it's well documented in history that a lot of the early uh, uh, British merchants and and uh, military people came out looking for their own personal gain as well too. So, so for them, conquest and um, and and um, I suppose getting very favorable favorable deals um, w- was was very much what drove them. Later on, once um, the Suez Canal was opened, um, then then shipping the shipping through the through the canal meant that um, a message through to India, rather than take up to two years, was down to a matter of months. And then finally, I think it was in um, 1869 that um, there was a um, uh, undersea cable that was laid between the between the two countries. And then, of course, uh, communication was, was within a matter of hours and minutes. It's really quite shocking to think about two years or even months of a gap, uh, especially since you and I are separated by many thousands of miles. You're in New Zealand, I'm in Israel, and we're chatting as if we're in the same room. Uh, but what what was the impact within the military and with, within the government decision-making when someone on the spot was not able to get uh, direction from uh, headquarters for months or even years? Yes, that, that's right. So um, um, in the English parliament, the, the UK parliament, uh, there were really two camps. There were the hawks and the doves. And 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 the hawks um, were all for expanding um, their territories and 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 really pushing pushing forward, um, pushing forward the empire. Whereas whereas the doves, in a way, um, um, their their stance was um, I suppose derisively called masculine activity. Um, and yet, whichever were in power, um, it was difficult for them to to then influence what was happening in India because of this time lag. So for example, if if the doves were in power and 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 and, and they were they were they, they were all for um you know just consolidating their gains and and and, and not focusing on, on territorial expansion, those wishes weren't weren't necessarily um uh enacted in India and um and you, you could see for example when Punjab the whole Punjab was taken or Sindh was taken all the time, the um, the 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 the, um, the viceroy, um, well, actually, the, the powers that be in India, anyway, in Calcutta, were, were pushing ahead with their own agenda, and and, and the two weren't weren't always um, aligned. Uh, tell us about the first British player in the great game, William Moorcroft. Yes, William Moorcroft was a fascinating uh, person, um, and. Um, he, he he was um he was unusual for a couple of um reasons um w- one of them was by the time he came to india he was actually quite old um uh, for his age um at at the time um you know um many many europeans um in asia really had they been in had they been in asia were dead by that stage um um also he was he was a uh he was a veterinarian and um and a very good one at that. Um, and and the other thing that was, I guess, unusual about him was that he wasn't part of the British military. He was 
he worked he worked for um he worked for them um and was um the superintendent of stud um for a, for a big stud farm because the 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 um cavalry the were, were were very short of horses and and could not sustain and supply the the number of horses that they needed so when he came across and set up their stud um um he did a lot he he did a lot to um to improve that but then why he became famous was that he realized that his heart really lay in exploration and as the first as he said the first great game player he he started to go north of india into the edges of tibet and more importantly into into what was then western turkestan um and into in in finally into bukhara where he was looking for the best bloodlines of the turkmen horses in doing that he realized that the russians were already into central asia um north of the oxus and so he was the first great game player in a way to sound the alarm to the british in india that hey there's another there's another power that that you need to be wary of so he discovered that although he wasn't really looking for it it wasn't his intention is that right yes that's right he um there there was a there's a famous story where um where he um he's, he's in one of the villages and 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 these dogs come out barking and then he realized the dogs were russian dogs and and that alerted him to the fact that actually in central asia you know many many miles from from the russian border and from moscow here were russians already uh, or, or, or already um in the bazaars and and seeking to um seeking to stamp the influence and of course from from Morkos point of view he felt that um you know the the british were 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 better 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 placed and in their own interests to um you know to expand into central asia so so he started to sound the alarm also that um you know in the interests of defending india as well hmm the one one common error uh, at least i believe it's an error uh, in the way of thinking when when we read or study history is the tendency to judge the past by the values and perspectives of the present how was colonial perceived in the 19th century uh, both by the major imperialist em- empires russia great britain iran and france and by the colonized people yes that's that's a really um good question and um and I, and I tried to address that in the book as well and and I think particularly what I tried to do in terms of talking about the great game when when that colonization was in full swing in central asia to try um and keep an even hand and what what I mean by that was that all the powers were at it and um of course uh um the european amongst the europeans the, you know the british had taken india which was as i said the jewel um and and the russians for their part w- w- was trying to take central asia because they really saw this on their doorstep and 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 their area of influence um and there was there was no question um there was no question about um the rights and wrongs then of colonization and um it's I guess un- un- until you take that into account it's, it's sometimes difficult to see why the why the empires were expanding the way they they were um so the 
so that the the uh, expansionists never even considered that there could be any problem with colonizing other places. I think generally not, especially in the uh, earlier 1800s when when colonization was in full swing and and I suppose sitting here in New Zealand, um, you know, I mean the Pacific was colonized in the same way too, and um, you know, um, at the time. It went through various stages, but but early on, it was the, the great white, um, you know, civilizing influence, um, you know, followed on by by the missionaries and and you know, uh, maybe maybe a conversion to a true god in inverted commas. Um, uh-huh. But I, but I think I also try and make the point that um, you know, if, if we return to Central Asia, that it's unfair to think that the colonization was only bad. Because, because in many ways, the people who were colonized did benefit from, you know, from from a rapid improvement in, in you know, in in, in the, in the um, living standards, in in, in their um, in education, in in many in many respects like that. The the thing also, obviously, is is that looking back, um, you know, there was no choice, and um, I think. Things were as they were. You know, it's it's difficult. It's difficult to judge a century later. Sometimes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, Afghanistan is in the news every day now, uh, and historically, it's been the downfall of many empires long before the 19th century, going all the way back to uh, Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Why? Were they drawn to Afghanistan? Why was it always so important to the great empires of the time? Yes, that's 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 a point I try and um, explain carefully in the book and and through the maps in the book as well as the great game was played out. Um, because as 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 the Russian Empire gobbled up um, Western Turkestan, um, you know, on its way perhaps towards India. Um, there was there was little that not only Britain but but the other European powers could do about it, um, and um, and so in the end, um, the British decided to draw draw a line in the sand, and of course the line in the sand had to be through a buffer country because um, neither empire wanted wanted to border each other in a way because because that that is always it creates its own flashpoints militarily. So, so the buffer drone was Afghanistan, just as, as as Tibet was later on, though it was not as important. And and the other reason um, Afghanistan was so important was that um, coming through uh, from Europe through to Central Asia, really the passes uh, were through Afghanistan, the legendary Khyber Pass, but also the Bolan Pass as well, um, and 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 that whole land bridge between between Europe. And the Near East, and then and then coming through the whole Persian land bridge, all that, all those roads from from Europe led to Afghanistan first before India, and so then Afghanistan, whether it liked it or not, um, all through the ages and even today, um, becomes a, a buffer country in some ways that is that is just fought over. So that that's its role today too. You're right. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and I'm sure that's not what they want, 
Um, and and the the other shame of it is is of course is that when you look at um, and, and you know in my book I, I talk in great deal about the first two the first two Afghan or Anglo-Afghan wars, um, which um, which ended badly for the British, um, and yet the powers later on later on the Russians and 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 then even the Americans and and the and the coalition that went went into Afghanistan almost nobody seems to learn from from those mistakes you know and 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 the key one being that the afghanis refuse to be ruled by other people you know they they are more um having foreigners you know in their on their soil um and they have a lot of experience with foreigners trying uh, yes yeah. that's right yes all the way to alexander the great as you say yeah um let let's turn for a moment to the spies you mentioned in the title I, I was surprised to learn from your book that despite perceiving Russia as a threat, the British were reluctant to use spies in India before 1829. Why was that, and what changed their minds? Yes, that's right, actually. Um, you know, and, and this, there's been various suggestions, but the one that I talk about in the book is that, um, that the the British actually weren't used to the whole concept of spying prior to that time. Um, that's not to say that the that the Asians weren't. The Asians, I think, have been masters at spying. Um, but the British in India weren't, and and it was it was it's been suggested that it, that was really against their culture almost in a way. So that when the Great Game began, um, and and the um, and, and the military powers then wanted all this information about Central Asia and um, and what lay outside India's borders, um, working towards the borders of, of 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 Russia. They realized that they just didn't have any of that material. They didn't have the maps. They didn't have the spy networks. You know, they didn't they didn't have people on the ground, and and so that was something they had to fix urgently. Um, and and so you know they um. They really, they really, I guess, took to spying in that area out of necessity, um, ra- rather than rather than um, anything else. So, what was the general state of mapping in the world at the beginning of the nineteenth century? Mm. Yes. So, so really, um, the British and the French in in, in Europe were particularly. Particularly strong at mapping, and and so um, the British perhaps uh, more than anyone else, whereas the French were very good at geodesy, um, and and so then Britain was mapped um, through through um, through 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 the whole through surveys that that mapped all of all of Great Britain, um, and um, and and soon afterwards um, Russia was beginning to be mapped in the same way, because the British wanted to. Um, you know, uh, tax um, and gain revenues from India. Their need to 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 map India was was driven by this sheer necessity, because um, the simple the simple fact being that that you can't tax landowners until you you know the extent of their holdings and until it's mapped. So then, again through need, India started to be mapped very quickly, um, and. It wasn't long before in the 1800s where actually India was one of the one of the best map countries in the world, and part of that 
was the creation of the great arc, which was which was which was um, you know, which went through the whole length of India to measure the shape of to measure the shape of the planet around the tropics and around India, which was the geodesy part of it um, that the French were so good at as well. And in doing that, in surveying and mapping, uh, it wasn't just uh, the British, Europeans, uh, and Russians who were involved in it. They depended, according to your book, on the local native Indians, especially the pundits. Is that the correct pronunciation? Yes, the pundits. Yes, pundits. Yes. So what happened there, um, the, the British could map within the boundaries of India uh, um, with, without, without risk other, other than, of course, the, you know, the dangers they faced in the jungles and, 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 and through, through disease and, 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 um, you know, and the difficulty they had um, just surviving in India. But really, there was no, no external threat as such. The problem became was that um, the, for two reasons. One, the British were great explorers, and they had this great thirst for exploration, and they wanted to know what lay across the border from India, you know, whether, whether it was um, into Central Asia or across the Himalayas and all the way into Tibet. So, th- so they had a real desire to, to map those countries as well, but those countries wouldn't let them in, particularly um, in Afghanistan, um, in Tibet, um, and, and, and into Central Asia as well. So, so the way they did that was, was to train native Indians to cross the border, which they could do without, without, um, without being barred into their, in, into their country. And Tibet was a really good example of that. But also, um, they weren't suspected as, as, as being surveys in, in, in any form. So, so the British came up with this idea that, well, if you train native Indians, which, which we call the pundits, um, they could then they could walk in, in, into places like Tibet or into Afghanistan um, and, and map as they went along. In, in mapping, uh, what we mean is really is to gather the data in terms of, in terms of um, distances and direction to bring the data back into India where, where the British um, you know, cartographers w- would then create those maps. So they were able to uh, enter the other countries uh, without suspicion, but not without risk, I understand. Oh, yes, that's right. I mean, um, for any of the pundits to be caught and to be found out as, um, as, as, um, as, as basically as, as, sur- as surveying in any form would have meant would have meant death. And you have to remember that the pundits needed to carry things like compasses and sextons. And later on, they carried even more sophisticated equipment like um, um, and, and Android uh, barometers and, and um, andrometers um, where they could um, you know, measure, measure the topography of the country that they visited. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of just... Um, being in disguise, but also hiding the, the equipment that they carried as well, too, including all their notes and, and the sketches they made. Um, yes, and their equipment was not miniaturized uh, as ours are today. They were big 
clunky <laughs> uh, object. So, uh, yes. Uh, do we know? I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, but, but on that, um, so, so what the British at the Survey of India's headquarters, what they did was, was they had a workshop and, and, and they, they, um, they would make these instruments so that they could be hidden, you know, in, for example, their baggage. Um, and, for example, the compasses they, they carried could be hidden in their prayer wheels and, and the notes were hidden in their prayer wheels. Um, so there was, a, there was a lot of spycraft involved, certainly. So it sounds like the British got started a little late in spying, but they uh, caught up pretty quickly. Yes, that's right. And um, um, they just applied themselves well and, um, yeah, um, um, driven by that need. Uh, do we know the names of any of the pundits? Or are they sort of the unsung heroes? Yeah, they, they, are, they are in many ways the unsung heroes. And, and unsung because, surprising, even in India today, um, they aren't very well known at all. And... Um, Yet um, there were there were about about twenty five odd pundits. Um, it's not clear how many there were because they weren't all recorded. Um, but I think one of the things I try and um, uh, point out in my book was that um, as, you know, as much as explorers at the time during the eighteen hundreds, particularly ex explorers were were really um, so well regarded through all of Europe. Um, you know, and, and, and they stood tall. And yet here were the pundits, which was a group of explorers, which are really, um, the world has never seen the likes of them. And they were certainly the greatest group of explorers that, that the world has seen. There's, there's been many other famous explorers, whether it be Livingston or Grant. You know, you can, you, you, you can name many. Um, and one of those pundits, for example, was, um, was awarded the Royal Geographic's gold medal, which was the pinnacle of exploration at the time. And his, his name and the name of many other pundits were known after they had finished their mission. So in this case, it was Nain Singh. You know, and um, I think the other point I'd make there, and, and, and I've made um, um, when I've talked to Indians as well, is that I think any other country, um, you know, to have, to have um, such, a, such an incredible group like that, um, would be well known, you know, and and there'd <laughs> there'd be a lot of there'd be a lot of, for example, statues and place names, etc., um, dedicated to them, and yes. and yet in, in in India today they're they're really not well known at all. Um, it's actually only in the last couple of decades that um, their story has now started to be told again. But you do introduce the reader to many exceptional characters uh, who were involved in the great game. Who, who's your personal favorite player? Um, I, I think, um, I think um, within that great game, perhaps a couple. One was Nain Singh, and Nain Singh went on to win the, the, the gold medal of the Royal Geographic Society. Um, he went on a number of missions. Um, I think it was four in all. Um, you know, and um, by the end of it all, he was um, his health had suffered terribly, and um, he really was a spent force when he when he was retired. Um, but also important because um, Nansing was actually a school teacher um, up up in the foothills of of the Himalayas, and and one translation of Pandit is school teacher, 
and he was so successful that all the rest of the all the rest of the native explorers after him would, were named as, as pundits. They were, um, and and he was he was um, quite a um, quite an extraordinary person, but also because he really he really explored into Tibet as the first one, and and um, and and I guess in a way blazed the the pathway for the others that followed. So he was he was he was certainly um, an extraordinary explorer, um, and one of the few of the pundits that got the the um, the accolades he deserved in in, in you know in, in being recognised by the Royal Geographic Society. Um, but having said that, you know, obviously many many weren't. Do you have a favorite among the English? It's, it's certainly um, William Lambton who um, who started the the um, the great trigonometrical survey um, of India, and and he was quite incredible because um, you know he started he started the adventure in the eighteen hundreds uh, well actually in, in eighteen hundred and um, you know was was a self educated geodist and he had this. He had this um, this dream of of, of, of of measuring the shape of the planet around around India, and 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 what he started um, later on, George Everest finished, you know, and had the mountain named after him. And and between the two of them, when they finished, was called one of the greatest works of science, um, you know, in the whole history of science, which which in itself was was an incredible achievement. But he's he, I guess, he's my favorite again because um. Uh, from from the British side because he was self educated, very humble, and 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 focused on his work and on his science rather than on self promotion or, or 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 gathering wealth. And by the time the Great Game was concluded uh, in 1907, well, let me ask it this way: um, the Anglo-Russian Convention of 1907. Is kind of the uh, the official conclusion of the great game. What is its legacy? What is its legacy? Um, I, I think I think perhaps, well, from my perspective, um, uh, perhaps the greatest legacy was that it averted war. You know, on a, on a number of occasions, um, Imperial Russia and Great Britain almost came to war, and these were the two big empires at the time. You know, they fought. Fought a war in Crimea, and 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 that was so destructive. Then, in fighting in fighting over Central Asia, and um, you know, within the machinations of the Great Game, on at least two occasions, um, you know, the world was predicting that they would go to war. But in the end, the 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 um, Anglo-Russian Convention, as you say, averted that war, and 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 that in itself, I think, was was a was quite an achievement. Um, what was also important, of course, was that you know seven years later, um, the Great War, the world, the First World War, would begin. Would begin, and um, and those those two empires, you know, needed each other as allies um, going in going into that into that uh, First World War. So, so that was that was a very um, uh, or, or a very tangible benefit of, of of the end of the Great Game, the legacy of the Great Game. There, there were many other there were many other um, uh, political um, outcomes of that as well. You know what happened in Tibet, what happened in Iran, and um, 
um, and in and in Western Turkestan. Um, but I think, yeah, I think I think I think the version of war was was really important. And by that time, had the uh, entire globe been mapped, or was was the job not yet finished? <laughs> Um, I think with mapping, the job is never finished in some ways because the technology just gets better and better. And um, so, in in a way, although 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 the planet was was mapped, and and you see this all through the through the book, there were varying levels of accuracy. Um, in an example being when India was first mapped was 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 mapped in a very well, looking back, a, a crude way. Um, with with really low levels of accuracy, um, and 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 as it's that's gone on all the way through to today, you know when you have GPS um, mapping that takes you years, now can be done with satellites, you know, and and imagery satellite imagery within within hours or minutes. So um yeah, so um I guess that mapping never stops. Okay, that's that's fair, and of course the globe also changes. Uh, in in other words, what what we have where, even though mountains and rivers don't generally change their location, the surface of the earth changes with what human beings uh, produce and build and and destroy. That's absolutely right. And 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 just if you look at the modern maps with um, showing climate change, the impact of climate change as an example. Um, you know, um, it's really stark, isn't it? I mean, another example, yeah. if you go to Central Asia, you know, the Aral Sea today is nothing like what the Aral Sea looked like on a, on a, on a map in the 1800s. Yeah, we, we, we don't usually think about the Earth changing that way, although right now it's in our face with climate change. Uh, yes. Riaz, you've produced a beautiful work in mapping the Great Game. Uh, are you considering a new project? Yeah, yes, actually, um, uh, my next book will uh, be published at the end of this year, and um, and it's about it's about the Silk Road, and um, um, and 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 a lot about the very earliest maps in the Silk Road, and um, and how the Silk Road developed. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm really looking forward to that, and 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 all my efforts in the last last couple of years have gone towards that. Wow. Well, we wish you a lot of luck going forward. And uh, we'll look, what, what's the title of the new book that we should look for? Um, uh, well, I have a working title um, uh, at the moment, which is The Stone Tower on, on the Silk Road. And the Stone Tower w- w- was, a, was a famous landmark 2,000 years ago, um, which, was the, which, was the, which marked the midpoint of the Silk Road, but has since since been lost in history and, and a number of a number of different historians and geographers have, have pointed to a place where they believe the stone tower was um, and so what this book tries to do is um, is perhaps uh, pinpoint that stone tower through a whole lot of research and um, yeah and, and and going back through through the early histories and the early uh, early works, of people like um, Claudius Ptolemy and, and, and the Chinese histories which talked about the Stone Tower. Sounds fascinating. I'll, uh, I'll keep a lookout for it. Uh, thank you so much, Riaz, for being on the show today, being generous with your time, and thank you for your important work.
Uh, thank you, and, and thank you very much to your listeners as well, and um, and 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 anyone who's interested in um, in in not only the book but but in the history and geography of of that of that era and 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 of that area. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. <laughs>